back with you this morning. Um, we almost were confused about the time this morning as well. I don't know if you noticed it, but we came in late. It's always nice to know that you've got friends where you're going to teach because uh, if you're off on your time schedule, they greet you with a smile and not a frown. <laughs> Ruthie was out there with her cell phone, and uh, we drove into the parking lot, and she's going like this, like this, like this, and I thought she was waving, so I just said, <laughs> Hello, Ruthie, how are you? And I think Judy looked up and she said, Tim, I think church has started. So, uh, But I was just talking to a friend uh, at LRI. He just got back from Nicaragua, and he said it's very interesting um, in South America, you say, uh, let's take a 10-minute break, and 40 minutes later, they come back from the break. So maybe I'm just on South American time or Chinese time or whatever it is. Anyway, it's good to be back with you. I apologize to the kids. Uh, I don't have notes today. I, um, I had a printing problem that was crashing my computer all um, day yesterday, and I, I was not able to finish those. But next week, we'll have notes, kids, okay? If I have to hook up my other printer, we'll have notes. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 3, a very familiar passage to most of us, uh, this story of Jesus and Nicodemus, um, something uh, that I've entitled just for this morning, Good News for the Religiously Correct. Um, if you turn the chapter to chapter 4, you see Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and I would entitle that one, Good News for the Morally Corrupt. And these two uh, incidents here are, are both given to us. We know from John, uh, the last chapter, that they're given to us that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing we might have life in his name. So these stories are here for us to learn about the gospel, to learn about Christ, to understand what it means to be a true believer of Jesus Christ. And uh, today uh, we're looking at uh, the good news for the religiously correct. We're actually going to look at this both in both weeks, this week and next week. Uh, read with me, if you will, down through verse 21. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the great truths and promises that you reveal to us. We thank you that we have a, a God who speaks. We thank you that you have given us ears to listen. And so, Lord, as we listen this morning to the words from John 3, I pray that you would teach us, instruct us, uh, challenge our hearts, Lord, with the truths that are here, that we might be uh, true followers of Christ as we leave here this morning. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Can I ask one question? Does this go up a little bit? Does anybody know? I think we have the Steve-sized pulpit this morning. And um, <laughs> it's in a... I just got back from China, and one of the things that is, is odd when you're in China and you're as tall as me, that'll be good. That'll be fine. Whoop. That'll be fine. That, that's, that's higher. It's good. Thanks. <laughs> On second thought, let me try it one more time. One of the things that you notice in China, if you're as tall as me, is that everybody is this short. And you, you, I just won't lean on it. How's that? <laughs> Uh, wow, no. <laughs> no, it's really, no, I'm not going to complain. This conversation uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus is, I believe, one of the most important that you will find in all of the Bible. A person can be ignorant of many truths in the Bible and yet still be saved and on their way to heaven. But the person who does not believe the simple truths that are contained in John 3 will be denied entrance into the kingdom of God forever. That's what we hear here. And so the simple truths that are in John 3 are very critical for us to examine and understand if we have hope of ever being with God in heaven. And many Christians use these verses as though they are directed to those who clearly do not know God. They're very familiar verses for evangelism with people in, in big evangelistic groups. Uh, John 3.16 is a, a commonly preached passage. And so it may surprise you to learn that this conversation took place with a man who represented the highest level of contemporary Judaism. A man who was a leader of leaders among God's people. A man who was a respected teacher of God's word. A man who ordered his whole life according to God's commands. And yet for all his religious zeal, for all his Bible knowledge, for all his years of careful obedience to God's word, Jesus says that this man was spiritually dead. 
John 3 is Christ's good news for the religiously correct. People whose approach to God can look so right, yet be so wrong. Religiously correct people may know the Bible inside and out. They may live according to biblical standards. They may even be leaders in the church or Sunday school teachers. Still, without the new birth that Jesus describes here, they are no more fit for God's kingdom than this morally corrupt person that you see in John chapter 4. John begins the story here by introducing us to a man named Nicodemus. He says he's a, a Pharisee. And in all the Bible, there is no better example of a religiously correct person than a Pharisee. These Jewish leaders were well known for their meticulous attempts to live by the law of Moses. I mean, they took every detail of of God's law and examined how it should be implemented in their lives. And so, for example, when it came to keeping the Sabbath... They worked overtime to try to define what could and could not be done on that day. Remember, I don't know if you've read through the Gospels, but they were always peering over Jesus' shoulders to see if if he was doing something that would violate their, their Sabbath standards. Yet in their quest to be religiously correct, they they actually kept expanding this list of what could and could not be done. And and they kept examining and adding to the moral law. and, And ultimately, their rules and regulations became absurd, completely absurd. For instance, if you had a sore throat on the Sabbath, they said that you could swallow some vinegar as medicine but you couldn't gargle with it because that would be work. Or if your hen laid an egg on the Sabbath, you could eat the egg as long as you promised to kill the chicken for working on the Sabbath. These are actually laws in the Talmud and the Mishnah. Women were forbidden to look at the reflection in what they used as mirrors during those times for fear that they would see a gray hair and pluck it out and thus violate their Sabbath regulations. The Pharisees were poster boys of religiously correct uh, people in Jesus' day. If the matter was praying, they prayed loudest and longest. If the matter was giving, they calculated their tithe down to the fraction of a cent. Jesus says that they, they tithe mint and dill. And come on, I don't know if you've ever seen mint and dill. And yet how would you tithe such a little bit? But they did that. If the matter was to promote a Jewishly, uh, a distinctive Jewish appearance, they would lengthen the tassels on their robes, Jesus says, in order to be, so people would look at them and go, oh, there goes a godly man. There goes a righteous man. There goes a, a person who lives by God's law. If they were a part of the church today, they would be in attendance at every service, both a.m. and p.m. I know we don't have a p.m. service here, but if you did, they'd be there. They would sit right here in the front row. They would carry the biggest Bible. They would have it open and be attentive to what was being said. They would have questions after the sermon. They would be in the Bible memory program. They would have their favorite Bible teachers on the radio. They would dress immaculately and conservatively. They would look like everybody thinks a Christian should look. They would talk like everybody thinks a Christian should talk. 
They would walk like everybody thinks a Christian should talk. I think they would smell like everybody thinks a Christian should smell. They would eat distinctively Christian food. They would drink only Christian drinks. They would invest solely with Christian uh, financial counselors. They would vote only for Christian candidates. But listen, for all the zeal and correctiveness of the religiously correct, Jesus says those type of people are still spiritually dead. You must be born again, he tells Nicodemus. You must be born again. Now, as we go through this chapter, this, they, these next two weeks, I want you to see six gospel truths for the religiously correct. And I hope these truths will help you when you're speaking to your friends and your family who may just be people who think they are Christians because they have attended church all their life or because they um, were baptized at a certain age or because they read their Bible every day or because they teach Sunday school or something like that. Maybe you have friends like that. I hope these truths will help you. But I also hope that if you've never considered the truths that we're going to see in John chapter 3 for your own personal life, that you would listen carefully to what Jesus tells Nicodemus and that you would respond prayerfully to your own need to be born again. So six truths for the religiously correct. Here's the first one. It's in verses 1 through 4. Salvation requires a change of who you are no matter who you are. Salvation requires a change of who you are, no matter who you are. As the account opens, Nicodemus is approaching Jesus. Look at there in verse uh, 2. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God has sent him. And Nicodemus begins his discussion this night with, the, with all the rabbinical flair for flattery. He says, Rabbi, that's like calling Jesus doctor or professor in these days. I don't know if you remember in Matthew, Jesus says, oh, the, the, the Pharisees love the greetings. They love the titles. They love to be called rabbi in the, in the open places. And so Nicodemus he comes in and he, oh, Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God, blah, 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 blah. I can, I can almost hear him in this, you know, in almost this Jewish Oxford, Oxford English thing of, Rabbi, we, we understand that you're from God and we, we want to just greet you today in all of the, 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 the high pomp and circumstance that we have. And at first glance, look at verse 3, Jesus' response appears abrupt. I don't know if it ever hits you as abrupt. It seems like it just comes out of nowhere. I mean, Nicodemus is just barely finished with the blah, 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 blah here. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see, see the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, oh, well, it's nice to see you too, Nicodemus. I'm glad you came to visit me this night. I wasn't doing anything. I'd like to talk to you about theology for a few hours. He doesn't say that. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, it seems like to me it just comes out of the blue. Until we consider something that John said at the end of chapter 2, look at it in verse 24. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to anyone. For he knew men. 
And he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, as this conversation opens, Jesus is confirming what John just said. Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus' heart as he walked through the door. He knew what this Pharisee wanted to hear. He wanted some flattery. He wanted some approval from Jesus. He wanted to be on equal par with Jesus. But Jesus knew what Nicodemus needed to hear. Not more flattery of, oh, you know, you're doing a good job on the ties, but, you know, the Sabbath thing is getting a little testy. You know, that's not what he needed to hear. What he needed to hear were the pointed words that would go right to his heart. And with this simple statement, Jesus gives the religiously correct Nicodemus a clear picture of where he stands before God. It would be helpful, by the way, to know that the analogy of being born again was not a new thought to Nicodemus. It wasn't a new thought for any Jew that lived in Jesus' day. You see, when a Gentile embraced Judaism, when when a Gentile said, you know, I I want to become part of God's people and I want to, I'll be a proselyte, I'll come and live among God's people and I'll worship uh, the, the true God of Israel when that happened. They would take the the person through a process of cleansing, ceremonial cleansings and washings, and the person would go through this process and come out what they called reborn. Reborn. And so the Jews considered a proselyte a new person with a new beginning. And, And the change in his life was thought to be so complete that the things in his former life were as if they never existed. Sins he had committed were totally washed away. And some rabbis even argued that a reborn man could marry his mother or sister without committing sin because all his family, former ties had been done away with. Now that's absurd, but that's how new they saw this rebirth. So it's important to understand that the notion of new birth would have been familiar to Nicodemus. He would understand the radical change that Jesus was demanding in his life. He would have heard Jesus saying something like this, "What you, You're really no different than the Gentiles, Nicodemus. You're really no different. You need a new life. You need a new heart if you want to enter the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 4 for a second. If Nicodemus was familiar with the analogy, why does it appear... That he was, that he sounds so surprised. Well, I think the surprise for Nicodemus isn't that Jesus is talking about a new heart and a new life. The surprise is that Jesus is applying this truth to Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, you, you're you're the leader, you're the teacher of Israel, but I'm telling you, you need a new heart. You need to be born again. It would be like walking into church and and saying to Gordy Bell, Gordy, you've been serving God for so long, but let me tell you the one missing ingredient in your life. Be that surprising. See, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day supposed that just because they were Abraham's children, that they would naturally have place in God's kingdom. 
More than once in the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, you hear reference to this mindset, such as when John the Baptist, remember when all the Pharisees were coming out to inspect what John the Baptist was doing as he's baptizing people in the wilderness. He says, what are you guys doing out here, you brood of vipers? You need to keep fruit that would be according to repentance. And then he adds this, don't suppose that you can say, we have Abraham as our father. Why would he say that? Because the Pharisees believed that just because Abraham was their physical father, they didn't have to go through all the stuff that all these people were going through. They were already in. They were already in the kingdom of God. Being a physical of... But um, Jesus, with this analogy, says it's very clear, Nicodemus. Being a physical descendant of Abraham will not gain you entrance into God's kingdom. In fact, unless you get this new birth, unless you have this changed heart, unless you're, you're completely, radically transformed by God's Spirit, you will not be in, you'll be out. Salvation requires a complete change of who you are, no matter who you are. You can be Nicodemus at the top of the ladder, but unless you've had this change, you will not be in. J.C. Ryle, who was an uh, Anglican bishop who lived in the 1800s, wrote this. He said, The change which our Lord declares needful to salvation is no slight or superficial one. It's not merely reformation. It's not merely amendment or moral change or outward alteration of life. It is a thorough change of heart and will and character. It is a new creation, he says. It's the implanting in our dead hearts of a, a principle of life from above. It's uh, the calling of existence into existence of a new creation. That's why Paul would say that. If any man is in Christ, there's a new creation. With a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, new hopes, and new fears. And all of this and nothing less is implied when our Lord declares that we need a new birth. Can I ask you a question before we move on through this story? Are you in or are you out? Are you in the kingdom of God or are you out? Have you experienced this new birth? Are you part of the religiously correct living in 20th, 21st century Illinois? You may have been baptized. You may have attended church all your life. You may have listened attentively to every sermon. You may take notes every week. You may even be teaching Sunday school. You may have all the you may have the greatest Bible knowledge of anybody in this church. That was Nicodemus. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. And yet he was still not in because he needed the new birth. Are you in? Are you in this morning? With this one statement, Jesus shakes the foundation of Nicodemus's religiously correct way of life. I find it interesting. He didn't, he didn't go to all the, the various views of their, their dealing with the law right here. He does that at other places, but he doesn't do it here. 
He doesn't say, you know, let's talk about the fine points of first century messianic hope because I think you're just a little bit off, Nicodemus. He doesn't whittle away at the edges of Pharisaic theology. Rather, he, he puts it right straight in front of Nicodemus. No amount of religious correctness can make you fit for the kingdom. Nicodemus needed something that he couldn't accomplish on his own. Nicodemus needed something that could be accomplished only by the Spirit's renewing power, not by man's religious customs. Which brings me to the second truth. The first is that salvation requires a complete change of who we are, no matter who we are. The second is this. Salvation is accomplished by the Spirit's power, not by man's religious customs and practices. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Any child can answer that question, right? Any fifth grader that understands birth can understand that and can answer that question. So why is he throwing these out? Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born. Again, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Look at verse 4 there for a second. Many people read Nicodemus's response here, these questions that he poses, and they conclude that he's entirely confused. I've read many commentators that say he just he was just blown out of the water. He didn't know what Jesus was talking about. And I think it's because they fail to consider who Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was a rabbi. In fact, he was a teacher of God's word. In fact. He was either the best teacher of God's Word or the most important teacher of God's Word, possibly even both, the best and the most important teacher of God's Word. Jesus calls him that in verse 7. He calls him the teacher of Israel. And as a rabbi, Nicodemus would have been accustomed to the rabbinic methods of instruction and discussion and debate that were common during this day. And one of the methods that the rabbis used would, would be a question. When a rabbi wanted to put forth a particularly challenging thought to a student, he wouldn't put the thought out as a statement, he would ask a question. Or if a rabbi was uh, um, asked a particularly interesting question, he wouldn't give his answer in the, form, in the form of a statement like Americans just cut right to the chase and we just give everybody the answer. He'd be patient with a student and he would give him a question. Jesus did this quite often. For instance, when the Pharisees wanted to accuse him of breaking God's Sabbath by healing a man, he simply asked them a question, a simple question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to take life or to heal? Another time, he took a, a passage from Deuteronomy. He said, which one of you, if you had an ox or a, a donkey fall into a ditch, wouldn't go and, and pull him out on the Sabbath? When the Jewish leaders questioned Jesus' authority in Luke 20, 
When they said, by what authority are you clearing out all the merchandisers from the Gentile court and the temple? Tell us, by what authority do you do this? Jesus didn't answer him directly. He said, well, let me ask you a question. And this question, when you read it, you go, well, where's this coming from? He says, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from man? Was it an earthly thing or a heavenly thing? They couldn't answer him. What's he doing? It's the rabbinic method of answering a challenge. And you can find numerous examples of this in the gospel. When a young man ran up to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't answer his question. He starts first with another question, right? Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? And my point is simply that Nicodemus's question in verse 4 here doesn't mean that he's entirely confused about what's going on. In fact, I believe that Nicodemus puts forth a challenge to Jesus' statement, and he puts it in the form of a question. He wants Jesus to understand the impossibility of what he's just declared to him. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus is saying, that's impossible, Jesus. He can't enter his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he? Jesus, that's just plain impossible. How can a Pharisee, a teacher of God's law, how can a person that's been sitting in the pew for 45 years, how can a, a, a person who's been teaching Sunday school for 25 years be told they need to start over? That's what Nicodemus is saying. He knew that Jesus' demand meant something of a new kind of a beginning. And he understood that Jesus was insisting that he turn away from this Pharisaic Judaism. And and for this seasoned Jewish leader, he was so well-steeped in biblical theology and Jewish tradition, this demand seemed utterly impossible. Put your shoes in. Put yourself in your shoes for a moment. Studied the law. You've taught the law. You've led God's people. How could Jesus say that's of no value? How could Jesus say that has no value? How could a person who has given his life to obeying God's word be so off track? How could a person who has taught others the Bible have missed the very meaning of it for his own life? How could a man at the top of the ladder be told to come down to the bottom rung? Well, if your ladder's against the wrong wall, you better come down, right? If you've climbed up to the top of works and it's not going to get you to heaven, you better come down. That's the problem with the religiously correct. They rely on a fleshly system of religious works and customs, thinking that salvation is accomplished through them. But salvation can only be accomplished by the renewing power of God's Spirit. It cannot be obtained through any work of man. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed at this, Nicodemus. Now, I've read a lot about this idea of being born of water. It's explained in a a variety of ways. Some think Jesus is talking about water baptism. 
especially because there's such a close connection at this point between Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry. If that's the case, Jesus is saying, you know what, water baptism is not enough. Just coming out and saying, I repent, is not enough. You must also be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That could be a possibility. Others think that Jesus is referring to the ceremonial washings that the Gentiles had to go through to become a proselyte. And if that's the case, Jesus is saying you can't rely on ceremonial stuff. It's not enough to say that will get somebody into the kingdom of God. They must have a new heart as well. I think that Jesus is simply talking about physical birth. A baby coming forth through the, the water of the amniotic fluid in the mother's womb. And the reason I think that is in verse 6, where Jesus says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You were born in the flesh one time through water, but you need to be born of the spirit, is what he's telling him. Wherever you land on that, I think Jesus' point is still the same. Physical heritage won't get you there. It's not enough. Outward obedience is not enough. It won't get you there. Because those things are fleshly things. And salvation is all about the change brought in a person's life by the power of the Spirit. I want you to hear this. The pharisaical concept of salvation focused on being Jewish and obeying God's law. It is no different for your Catholic friend who focuses on being Catholic and obeying God's Word. It's no different than your Baptist friend who focuses on being baptized and obeying God's Word. It's no different than your non-denominational friend who focuses on church attendance and obeying God's Word. It's no different. The point is that all your best efforts of obeying God's Word cannot save you even if everything you do is firmly grounded in in the Bible. It can't save you. Salvation can only be accomplished by the Spirit's renewing power. Do you know why this is so? Do you know why this is so? If you go back to Genesis and read the story of Adam and Eve, it says when Adam and Eve sinned, God removed his spirit from them. If you read that carefully, you'll understand that the death they went through was not a physical death. God promised them death. They died when the spirit was removed from them. Spiritual separation. And ever since that time, every human baby has come into this world with a heart that is spiritually dead, separated from God. And no mere human has ever been able to give life to his spiritually dead heart. Not even the people that in the Bible that we read about were given God's word as their guide for life. The Jews couldn't do it. The religiously correct Nicodemus couldn't do it. Neither could Solomon or Abraham or Elijah or King David. None of them could do it. And we can't do it either because it only comes about by the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God to give us new life. So how can we get the Spirit of God to change our hearts? How can we do that? How can we get the Spirit of God to change our hearts? Well, first, look at verse 8. 
we must realize that we cannot compel him to do so. Boy, that takes you right from the point of pride and arrogance that the Pharisees had to the point of humility that you need, doesn't it? Look what it says, verse 8. You can't compel the Spirit to do this. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, Ryle said this change of heart it, uh, is rendered absolutely necessary by the deadness of our soul. Yet the mighty change we need, we cannot give ourselves. I don't know how verse 8 strikes you, but I think it struck Nicodemus as unsettling. I think it was the most troubling, mind-boggling, earth-shaking, soul-wrenching thought that Nicodemus heard this night. Why do I say that? Look at, he, look at his response in verse 9. How can these things be? How can this be, Jesus? this one statement in verse 8, Jesus now shatters the fragile foundation of Nicodemus's religiously correct way of life. Before he had shaken at the foundation, now he shatters it completely. Because for the religiously correct person, it's all about what I can do and what I can control. And Jesus says it's about what God does, and you can't control Him. You might as well try to harness, harness the wind. You might as well try to go out and find the wind and grab it and try to control it as to control the Spirit of God. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know whether it's coming or going, Jesus says. So how can I be saved? Well, we're going to get to this next week, but look at verse 16. Verse 16, by believing in Jesus, that his death on the cross has satisfied God's anger against your sin. By trusting that his death is so fully sufficient that you no longer live your life trying to attain God's favor through your works, but you want to live a life out of love to please him. It's like the old hymn writer put it, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I want to leave you with one closing thought out of verse 8. Some things about the wind are puzzling. Jesus says we can't see it, nor can we produce it. And we really don't know where it comes from, where it's going. We can't hold the wind. We can't control the wind. But one thing is clear. We can know where the wind is blowing. By the sound that we hear as the leaves are rustling in the trees or by the, the way the clouds are moving across the, the sky, we can see, we can know where the wind is blowing. And then Jesus says this, it's the same with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's the same with everyone who is born again. While we cannot see or control the Spirit of God, we can see the effect of His transforming power in the life of everyone He touches what kind of effects would he have on us? Well, John, who wrote this right here, goes on to write in his epistle in 1 John five clear evidences of someone who is born of the Spirit. 
He says in chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who is born of the Spirit believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That's where it starts, believing and trusting that Jesus truly is the Savior of all mankind. He says in 1 John 3, 9, that one of the effects of the, the life of the Spirit is, or being born of the Spirit is that a person does no longer habitually sin. Now, that doesn't mean you don't sin, but you don't habitually continue to come back and sin and sin and sin. In fact, in 1 John 2.29, he says one of the evidences of, the, of being born of the Spirit is that you practice righteousness. 1 John 4.7, you love other children of God. 1 John 5.4, you overcome the world. Do you see evidence of that in your life? That you believe that Jesus is the Savior? That when all else is failing around you, you have this solid trust in Christ to save you. That you're not trying to work your way to heaven, but you're trusting solely in Christ. You see sins in your life that still need to be, after years, habitually removed. I mean, they're habitually, they, they need to be removed. Are you pursuing righteousness? Not your self-righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Do you love the people of God? Are you overcoming the world, or does the world have a grip on you? Those are the evidences. It's not about how many Bible verses we can memorize. It's not how many times we go to church. It's whether we see growing evidence of the new life, which only the Spirit can give. Paul listed fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Remember those? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We should be seeing evidence of those growing in our lives. Like fruit on a tree, we should see evidence of the, the, the life of the Spirit through those fruits. Do you know anything of the powerful change that Jesus is demanding of Nicodemus? That it changes your life from, and your approach to God from just being knowledge and words and routine to, to life, to power, to transformation, to godliness. What about others? Can others see this in your life? It is, is it as clear as the wind blowing through the trees? It needs to be because, as Ryle put it, a day is coming when those who are not born again will wish that they had never been born at all. It's a powerful statement. But there is that day coming. Well, here's two truths for us to consider and ponder, not only for our own lives, but for those that we know who are, who are wrapped up in a religiously correct system. Salvation requires a complete change of who you are, no matter who you are. You can be the top deacon in the church. Salvation requires a complete change of who you are, no matter who you are. And salvation can only be accomplished by the power of God's Spirit. It cannot be accomplished by man's religious customs and practices. And praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. Because if it were up to my religious customs and practices, I would never, ever make it. But by the power of God's Spirit, I'm in. Amen. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for, for these short few words to Nicodemus. Lord, I pray that they would challenge our own heart, give us a, a, a great thought-provoking week, Lord, of whether we're really in, whether we've been relying on our own 
religious practices, whether we've been relying on uh, a reputation that we've built around good Bible, uh, solid Bible-appearing practices that we can do like Nicodemus. Oh, Lord, if we need to drop that, if we need to come down to the bottom rung, I pray that you let us do that. Give us the humility. Lord, we thank you that salvation is not by our own accomplishments, but by the power of your Spirit. And we thank you that your Spirit not only saves us, he holds us, he keeps us. Because we know how hard it is to walk through this world, Lord. And we know how hard it is to overcome this world. We know how hard the temptations hit us each and every day. Lord, we thank you for your Spirit's power to keep us and to bring us safely into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that if anyone here needs the new heart, that your spirit would be kind to them and give them a a new life through the new birth that Jesus speaks of here today. I pray this in your son's name.